What I often tell people is, without some of these key institutions in town, and I think that's the sports teams, I also think it's the symphony and the zoo and the children's museum, without these things continuing to thrive, we're Omaha or Des Moines or some of these other cities that I'm sure are lovely, but they certainly are not spoken about in the same breath that we are. And when we bid on the All-Star Game back in 2017, there was no doubt in the NBA's mind that we could host this after having done a Super Bowl so successfully. And when we do this successfully, the next big thing that we bid on, there will be no doubt in their mind that we're adding yet another thing that um, makes us successful as a city and a state. That was Mel Raines, President and Chief Operating Officer for Pacer Sports and Entertainment, talking about how her team works diligently for increased inclusion at all levels of their sports organization and for broad community inclusion in the NBA All-Stars event coming to Indianapolis in February. And this is IBJ's The Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman. So Mel, Happy New Year to you. Happy uh, 2024 and welcome to the Freedom Forum. Thank you so much for being our first guest in the new year. This year is a huge sports and major event year in Indianapolis. And I wanted to be sure and speak to some of the forces behind some of these major events that are coming to the city. But before we get started, will you please tell our listeners a bit about you, your educational and professional background, and any other factors that have led to you becoming the president and chief operating officer for Pacers Sports and Entertainment. Thanks for having me on today, Angela. I'm, I'm honored to be here and uh, an avid listener of your podcast. So thank you. So my story is probably like a lot of people here in Indianapolis, grew up in South Bend, Indiana, and went to IU. Um, everybody asked if I went to Notre Dame. They, I would have loved to have gone to Notre Dame. I don't think they wanted me to uh, go to Notre Dame. Um, but I'm a proud IU graduate. And during the time I was at IU, I did an internship in London one summer and really got the bug to live in a bigger city. So I applied to do a DC internship my spring semester of my senior year. I was uh, a telecom advertising major, but the SPIA school had this great program in DC. I got an internship there and just fell in love with the city. I, I couldn't have picked it out on a map before I applied to this program. And that really caused me to have an accidental 20-year career in politics. So I started out right after graduation on Capitol Hill, working for Senator Dan Coats in his first stint as senator. I was there for about five years. And then I don't know why I wanted to do this, but I ended up applying for a job on the Republican convention in 1996, which was in San Diego. I probably wanted to move to San Diego, but <laughs> um, and I did do that. But I got the job and really fell in love with this big event. Politics was a great bonus, but this big event circus that you can get on and, and the opportunities that you're presented as a young person at a major event when a lot needs to happen in a short period of time is sort of intoxicating. And so you get addicted to, I have all this responsibility and I'm 25 or 26 and and I really loved it. And so when it was over, I went to the Republican National Committee with the thought that I'd like to do this again and I'd like to start earlier and be one of the first staff people. And I was lucky enough to do that. So two and a half years of the RNC. And then I moved to Philadelphia and then opened our office for the 2000 convention in the summer of 99. So I lived in Philadelphia for 15 months. As a side note, Indianapolis was the runner up in that. So Indianapolis bid to host the 2000 convention, did not get it. I was heartbroken. I would have loved to have moved home to work on that one. But I moved to Philadelphia. It was a great experience. 
after that convention was over, I was working on the Bush Cheney campaign when I got a job offer from Philip Morris Companies, Inc. in New York. I'd met them during the time planning the convention. And my boss said, I don't know what's going to happen on Election Day. You should probably take this job. So I started the day before Election Day 2000 in New York, worked two and a half years there, and then they moved me back to D.C. I was in public affairs and government affairs for them. Great company. They owned Philip Morris, Miller Brewing, Kraft Foods, huge Fortune 100 company, great professional development training. And I probably would still be there if I didn't get a call from the White House one day in 2006 asking if I was interested in interviewing for a job in Vice President Cheney's office. And I did something that you should never do. I declined the opportunity to interview. I was happy where I was. I had a lot going on, getting my grad degree. And for whatever reason, they called me back a few days later and said, would you at least come down and talk to us? So, of course, I'm not going to, you know, it's 16 blocks away. So I, I went down, had the conversation. They talked me into the job or at least talked me into interviewing actively for the job. So I started there in the spring. I was in the White House for a little over a year. And then I went to another Republican convention in 2007 and eight, And then at the end of that, I went back to the White House for a few months to help wrap up. And at the beginning of 09, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I was sort of ready to pivot from politics. I knew that Indianapolis had won the Super Bowl bid, and I started researching jobs on the host committee. I applied that summer of 09 um, with, I think, a lot of other people for a position, got a phone interview, and then got flown out for a final interview. And thanks to Caroline Mays and Allison Melanchthon and some other folks, was able to get that job and move home to my home state that fall. I was two and a half years on that really fun effort to execute the Super Bowl. And some of that was good planning and some of that was good luck with the weather. And during that time, I met Rick Fusen from the Pacers. And so my first job after the Super Bowl was working uh, for Susan Brooks in her first term. She was running for Congress. I had met her during planning for the Super Bowl. It was a good fit. I love Susan. I loved her vision. She was a great member of Congress. We should be lucky as to have all of our members of Congress be that dedicated. So I helped her in her first term. And then at the end of that term, Rick Fuson called and said, I'd like to talk to you about an opportunity with Pacers. I'd never thought about working for an NBA team or the Pacers. I'm obviously a fan, but we went and we talked about it. And he saw something in me that I did not see in myself, I will tell you. And he was really dedicated to diversifying his senior team and bringing him some new talent. And um, in this particular position, which was Senior Vice President of Facility Operations, there across the country at the time, out of 29 NBA buildings, there were two women who had that job. And so you weren't probably going to steal someone with a lot of experience to do it. You were going to have to build that experience. And he thought I had the skills to do that. So and it, it was a lot more work for him to hire me than it would have been a lot of other people. And so I started almost nine years ago. It'll be next month. And since then, I've been promoted twice into, into what I'm doing today. But it's not a direct path, certainly, to get to where I am. I, a lot of students will email me about getting together to, you know, I have their dream job. I don't think they know what that job is. It might not be their dream if they did. But, <laughs> um, but that being said, I say, you know, there's a lot of people who intentionally worked to get to where I am today. And you should probably be meeting with them because the road through politics is probably not the most direct path. 
But it's such an interesting path, right? And I thought that you had kind of had this time in politics and then came to sports. What you just said is, no, you kind of dibbled and dabbled and tinked back and forth between them both and then landed at the Pacers. And I think that's awesome. But before we leave the politics, right, because we're we're in an, a presidential election year, there's a lot going on on the political landscape. What are your thoughts about the current state of political discourse in the country that has, quite frankly, many Americans simply exhausted, particularly in this year of a presidential election. And what lessons did you learn during all your time in politics on the national level and in Indiana that you think would help others navigate their current career in politics, and more importantly, that you think is important for the current generation of politicians, congressmen, voters, etc., and particularly the American public, that they could benefit from some of your insight and background? That is quite a question. <laughs> uh, there's a lot wrapped up in that. I think I'm grateful that I started my career in the early 90s. I'm grateful there was no social media when I started on Capitol Hill. We didn't have external email, so I was still opening letters from constituents. As a matter of fact, I was answering the front office phones during the Clarence Thomas nomination hearings, and the only way to contact your senator in time for that vote was to call, and the phone lines in the Senate went down. There was no quick way to send a note and, and for your voice to be counted. And so while that could be painful sometimes, it was certainly a nicer discourse, I would say, of people. I mean, and, and social media changed that dramatically. Just to, I've often told people when I worked for Senator Coates, he, in my opinion, is a great statesman, um, as Senator Luger, you know, certainly was. And, and I think we, we've been lucky to be represented in a lot of different offices by, by people who are best in, in class and, and whatever that is, governor, senator, member of Congress. And Senator Coates was the same person when I worked for him in the early to mid-90s as he was when he was reelected in, in 2010 and took office in, in 2011. But he was one of the most conservative members of the Senate in the 90s, and he was a moderate when he came back. I mean, it just, that barometer had changed dramatically. And so when I went back and worked for Susan Brooks, it was a very different world. And working on Capitol Hill 18 years later, however many years later it was, 20 years later, and how you reacted to things and managed things. And the legislative process is not a quick one. Um, it is at the state level. It is not at the federal level. And just, I think everybody doesn't necessarily need to know what everybody's thinking every second that they're thinking it. I don't know that that's helpful. And and the Senate is in particular a deliberative body on purpose, the House a little bit less so. But I have mixed emotions about it. I'm very grateful for my time in politics. It made me who I am today. I'm grateful that I am not in that anymore. When I have a tough day in my job now, I remember what that was. And I um, am grateful where I am. Not that all companies and positions aren't challenging at a higher level, but it certainly is where I belong right now. I will say I'm really proud to be a Hoosier. I think we have a mayor and a governor who are of different parties and work well together here to make our city work as well as it can. I think VOP leads a great city council. I think we have good leadership at the, at the state legislature level. And and I'm happy to see that because that doesn't always happen in the game in, in D.C., but certainly Senator Young and Senator Braun and Congressman Carson. And I think we have some really, you know, we have strong people who I think are doing the, the best things they can for our constituents in a difficult environment. And I'm certainly not headed back out to D.C. anytime soon to do that kind of work. And But I do think that 
a lot of young people who want to transition out of politics struggle with how to translate that experience. And, and I did as well. I mean, it's, it's hard to explain what those jobs are. And I'm good at what I am doing today because of that foundation. And you have to be resourceful and you have to be quick with things and you've got to be able to brief important people, have a good presence about you. You've got to be organized. You've got, I mean, there's a lot that you have to do that are the building blocks of being successful in a lot of other industries or businesses. And it certainly taught me all those things. And I've been lucky enough to hire or maybe adopt a few people out of politics into, into other positions and other jobs I've been in and with great success. Because I think once they get on the ground, people see like, wow, these people are really adaptive. I mean, when you're doing that other kind of work, you have to have, a, you got to wear a whole lot of hats. You wake up some mornings and something that happens on the other side of the world is going to change your entire day. And you've got to be able to react to that quickly. And in 2024, things change all day, every day. And if you're not able to kind of keep moving with it, you're probably not going to be successful doing much of anything. So yeah, I'm grateful for that time. And I'm grateful we have good people that still want to run for office. And I won't be putting my name on a ballot anytime soon, but happy to support those people that I think are doing a good job here. As a former scientist turned lawyer, I get a lot of questions about why I make the transition, how do you make the transition? And I don't know that I know a greater transition than politics to sports. Like, I thought my transition was pretty steep, but that's a serious transition. And acknowledging that, like many industries, there are not a lot of women leading in either politics or sports. So you having such an opportunity is really an amazing feat. So I want to ask, when you were just starting off in your career path, what did you actually aspire to do? Were you aware of all the career opportunities that were available to you? And when did you realize that you had a unique opportunity to lead and influence in a way that would would allow you to transfer those skills from politics to sports? I had no idea what I wanted to do. Like most college students. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, and I feel bad that young people today are being made to say at 14 what they want to be when they're my age. And I don't know that I still know exactly what I want to be. I'm still becoming that person. But I originally thought I wanted to be an air traffic controller, which is interesting because I am an air traffic controller half of my day um, in a different different way. I don't save as many souls probably, but it's just, a, it's just constantly changing. I also thought that I might want to be an accountant. I wish I had taken some accounting classes because that would be helpful too um, in a lot of what I do. But ultimately, I think I just honestly on mistake fell into this job on Capitol Hill and I just liked the environment. And what I've come to realize over time is everything I've been good at requires me to manage people, projects, and budgets to some degree. And some of those jobs, when I was with Susan Brooks, we had a small team of 14 people, not a big budget, but a whole lot of projects. With the Pacers now, I have a lot of all three of those things. At a Republican convention or a Super Bowl, you have a lot of people, a huge amount of money, a short amount of time to execute something really large. And so I think if you're good at managing those things or you keep getting better at managing those things, you can grow your career even if you're not I'm sort of a jack of all trades and a master of none. That's sort of what I've been able to hang my hat on. 
I can't recall the second part of your question, but I think it was important. (laughs) So it was really what unique opportunities allowed you to realize that you could lead and influence in all these different respects, those transferable skills. How did you know that the skills that you obtained during politics would actually transfer outside of Rick Fusion calling you and saying, hey, they transfer? Right. (laughs) I think on the Super Bowl, I started to understand it a little bit better. So it was really... I didn't. I had a couple of friends in Indy, my college roommate and another one of my good friends and former roommates from D.C. had moved back home. But I didn't have a a big network here. I had a a small network and I moved back on a whim and I thought I'm going to rent an apartment for two and a half years and see how this goes. And if it was the great flop, I'll go back to D.C. I can always get work there. And so it was during that time that I realized that 20 years of experience, 20 plus years of experience I had at that point did translate to something I did connect well back with my home state and that I could lead here in a different way. And then through the process of coming to the Pacers, I never thought about serving on a nonprofit board. In D.C., it doesn't have the same sense of community that we have here. And so maybe six months in, I was approached by Jennifer Vigran at Second Helpings, who we hosted Quirks and Forks for them every year in the building, about doing a tour of their of their facility and their kitchen and learning more about what they do and And I did that. She followed up a few months later and said, we have an opening on our board. I would love for you to join. And I never thought about that before. And I love their mission. I think she was a great leader. So I enthusiastically said yes. And then, you know, of course, then you sort of start getting these other opportunities. And and so I think that's just, it's just incredibly important here and shows you, it's another example of how you can lead in a different way. You grow your network, you step up at, at special events, you get the extra auction items and you you have a chance to prove yourself and see that you can do this. You don't know until you get in that room and you get that seat at the table, but then it's up to you to just do the work and and prove yourself. And so I think Indianapolis gives you that opportunity for anybody. I can certainly attest to that because I'm not from here. You are from here. I'm not from here. But I've been able in the course of my two decades here to completely integrate into into the community. And part of that is what I believe makes Indianapolis so special is exactly what you're saying. I don't believe that exists in every city where you have the opportunity to not be from here and truly get invested in the community, integrated on the boards in, you know, in the community. And I think that's why I'm still here 20 years later. It really is something special. I couldn't agree more. I've lived in in San Diego, Philadelphia, New York, Tampa for a short time, St. Paul for over a year, in and out of Charlotte a little bit. And I think two things. One, they don't have the same sense of community and they don't come together the way we do for big things. And two, if if you are not really from there. That's right. (laughs) They will never truly let you in. There's a couple of those cities in particular when they say, where did you go to school? They mean high school. And if you don't say a high school that was there, you can be in the meeting, but you'll never really get the secret handshake there. And that's just not the case here. I spent more time outside of this state than I had in it when I came back. And that didn't matter to anybody. And I, I maybe... I think I wouldn't have gotten the job if I wasn't a Hoosier, to be honest, and that was important priority. But if I had and I didn't grow up here, nobody would have cared. They just wanted me to come back and they wanted me to be vested and they wanted me to stay. And I've seen that with a lot of other friends like you who grew up somewhere else. Alison Millington's from Maine. 
very few people know that because you would think she was from here. the queen of Indianapolis. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, she has been. And she has been. <laughs> and she would she would never move back to Maine, but that's where she's from. And and then we're happy to adopt you. So and and so many of your guests who are friends of mine are the same, you know, Raphael and Juan and others have come from far away. And I don't think they would imagine living anywhere else. Absolutely. It is truly what makes Indianapolis so special. So I admittedly have no clue what it takes to run an NBA organization, although I will readily admit I'm a basketball fan. I'm a basketball mom with a college player myself and a law partner. So I can totally appreciate from a corporate organizational perspective, you know, some of the risk and liability that you may have to manage. But for those of us like me who really has no clue what you do on a day to day basis, although you have plenty of people who want your job, Explain to us what your day-to-day job entails. How are you able to influence your team and make positive change for the Pacers organization? And then what successes have you had so far that you're really proud of and that you want to shine a little light on? One of the things to understand, and I learned this when I was working on the Super Bowl and working with the Colts a little bit and the Ursay family and Pete Ward, who's such a great leader of that organization, is that these professional sports teams in every city are usually a small family business. And that's very much, I think, in in the best ways. We're part of the NBA and we have an NBA team and a WNBA team and a G League team and a 2K team and we run the field house, all those things. Herb Simon and Steve Simon and the Simon family and and have been stewards of the organization since 1983. And so we're nimble organization and pretty entrepreneurial, I would say. I love that about us. We have a little over 300 employees, and that's across all of those things that I just spoke about. And so what's nice about our team is that we want one of our company mottos is we are one. And so the folks that run the basketball team and the business, I think, are much more aligned and closer than I've seen in some other teams. And I'm grateful for that. I think that on a daily basis, every single day is different. Right now, I will say six weeks out from the All-Star weekend, it is very All-Star focused and needs to be for those next six weeks. But we have a simple business and a complicated business at the same time. So at a really simple level, we obviously have these teams and they play most of them in the field house. And we want to fill the stands and have the best fans in the world. And and then we do all of these other events. So this year we'll do about 175 ticketed events and another three to 400 other kinds of meetings and functions in the building that are private. Some are large, some are smaller meetings. We have something going on almost every day of the year. So we're trying to fill that building 365 days a year between 15 and 18,000 people, depending on the event. And our event business is growing, which is great. So whether that's Disney on Ice weekend, and we'll have upwards of 50,000 people over that weekend, um, and hopefully ice skating on our new plaza and all those kinds of things coming downtown and, and eating and parking and all those things are really important to us. So, you know, we sort of had that core business. And, and if I'm thinking about it, we have a Pacers game tonight, if I'm thinking about a Pacers game day, then a lot of people will ask who aren't familiar with the business, you know, oh, do you interact with the players or the coaches or that sort of thing? And, My goal is if I'm doing my job well, I never have to talk to them on a game day because they don't call me to say the lighting and the temperature is perfect today. You know, that's assumed. And we need to create a perfect environment for them to do their very best and and hopefully win that game. 
And so my departments are everything from the facilities, which is ticketing and security and housekeeping and hopefully food and beverage. And and when you come to the building, hopefully that's a great experience and you want to come back and you want to tell your friends that they should be coming to events and games and things and, and that they want to come back. And and that's success. I mean, that's sort of the Disney model that we follow. And we take a lot of pride in how we treat our part-time employees. They're the face of our organization for everyone coming to the building. And if we're treating them well, they will be treating our fans well, and our fans and guests will be want to come back. And so that's certainly something we focus on intentionally and all the time. And it's important for us to have a diverse workforce of people because our guests that are coming are incredibly diverse. And in any given week, we could be having you know, a family show might be having the rodeo. We might be having an urban concert. We've actually had more Hispanic shows in the last two to three years than we had in several years before. It's a growing market for us. And how we approach all of those events is really differently because the people coming are different. So at Disney on Ice, we need to be, we're, we're selling more soda and hot dogs and those kinds of things than we are at a concert. And depending on the concert, you know, we'll get data from other buildings that have hosted. Some shows are more of a beer crowd. Some are more of a bar crowd. And I want to be sure that we have what the people want who are coming there. And in some cases, we need more Spanish speakers front of house to make sure that we're answering people's questions and getting them to their seats. And so we really are taking a look at all of those different things and treating them uniquely. So if you're coming to one of those events on Monday and one of those events on Friday, I hope that you have a great experience at both of them, it will probably be a different experience because it's going to be a different crowd. And so and so that's a challenging part of our business, but something that I love. And I love that we're pretty nimble. And so we have a great program, a minority guest chef program at one of our concession stands. And we've grown that over the last two or three years. And that's the kind of thing that I don't know that a decade ago that we would have even thought to do or been able to execute. But we are much more able to fail fast or succeed and change things up. And so I love that we have that many events. I think it would be hard to do one big event a year or two big events a year because I have four or five things this week and I'm going to have four or five next week. So let's try it, see how it went, make it better, tweak it, change it completely next week. And so we can do that in a number of different areas. And I really do enjoy that. And we just have great leadership support. And the other interesting thing about professional sports team, and I think that's the case for all the teams in town, is we're all super community focused. So we're not just a business and we don't just look at ourselves as a business. We're we're part of what makes the city and the state really great and people proud to live here. And so we do a lot of community events in the building and now on the plaza. We offer it to nonprofit groups at usually an incredibly significant reduced rate to enable them to be able to do things, whether that's the Million Meal Movement or Quarks and Forks for Second Helpings, or I think we only have one day in January where we don't have a big event of some kind. And so we take a lot of pride in that, and we probably don't always look at that. We for sure don't always look at that as you would a business with a balance sheet. We look at it in the way Herb Simon has often said that Indianapolis has given more to his family than he could ever give back. And he wants to be sure that um, the team is always in Indiana and in Indianapolis and that we manage the building in a way that we're using it for its highest and best use. And that is often with a lot of community events in it. Yeah. 
I'm in Gamebridge. I'll be over there next week. I come to the games regularly. And you're right. Coming to a Pacers game versus a concert are two completely different experiences. But it is so nice. And again, coming from a state and even a city that didn't have professional sports teams, it really is a gem. It being the Pacers organization is really a gem of the city as well as the Colts and so many other sports organizations. But it's really one of the things that makes us so unique. And it is a community effort, right? It is a opportunity to bring the community together. I've entertained clients, met friends, kept friends, lost friends, you know, like all that happens at the Pacers games or happens at other games in the city. And I think that's really phenomenal. So thank you for all you're doing there. Now it's time for a break. Get caught up on the state's top business news every business day with the Inside Indiana Business Radio On Demand podcast. Available now at InsideIndianaBusiness.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back with Mel Raines, President and Chief Operating Officer for Pacer Sports and Entertainment, on this 30th episode of the Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman. Let's talk about being a woman in leadership. As a woman, explain to us some of the experiences you've had in ascending to leadership in both sports and politics, how they may be different or similar, and also some of the particular strengths that you've now learned over the course of your career that you bring to your teams. One of the things you you just, it makes me think of this. One of the things you, you had asked me previously and I didn't fully answer is, when I think of what I'm, one of the things I'm most proud of during my time with Pacers is our renovation project. And that was something when I, right after I started, we started digging into that and master planning for that. And um, then, you know, working on with the CIB to renew our, and the mayor to renew our lease deal. And and that exercised um, sort of my political muscle a little bit, but I had no experience in construction. I had renovated my kitchen once in <laughs> DC for $30,000. So this was a little different. And I dove into that, you know, and I asked 8,000 questions. I did not know how to do that. And I do know how to do that now. And I also hired a couple of people who are happen to be female, but who do know how to do that and are phenomenal at it. And to think about where we were in 2015 and what we look like and we are today as, an, as a physical organization, our physical building and facility, just I'm incredibly proud of all that we've accomplished and what it took to get there in terms of the team to do it, which was our entire team, and then hundreds of construction and architects and other, and other people to get there. But a lot of people have asked, well, how did I lead that, you know, as a woman? And I don't think I led it any differently than anybody else would have led it who didn't have a construction background, which is the only way I knew how. Um, sometimes that was through a wall when if I had to. But when I first graduated from college, and this may be your experience, I'm guessing we're similar in age, I certainly was lucky that I had some strong women in Senator Coates' office who were very smart and good mentors to me, and I did not have sharp elbows at all. But I did get the sense in the world, the larger world, that there was probably in 1991 one seat at the table for a senior woman in a lot of places. And there wasn't a great incentive for that woman to bring a lot of other women up because she could be kicked out of that seat at the table. And over the last 30 plus years, 
I've certainly never subscribed to that, and I don't see it nearly as much, thankfully, because I think there's plenty of seats at the table for everyone who's talented and, and brings something to the business, and I'm grateful for that. I certainly have had a lot of women mentors and a lot of men, and right now, whether it's it's Herb Simon or Steve Simon or Jim Morris or Rick Fusen, they've all mentored me and helped me get to where I am. You know, another person who adopted me the day I got to the Pacers is Kelly Kroskoff, who used to run the Fever and is now the highest ranking woman in the front office of a of an NBA team as our assistant general manager. And she is a tough Texan who on more than one occasion, I have walked into her office and closed the door and had tears in my eyes. And she has absolutely coached me on the right path and um, you know, toughening up a little bit, quite frankly. And you need a little bit of both of those, I think, in your career. So I've been lucky to have all of the above. And you probably have felt this way too. I've been in early on when you're at the table in the meeting in the whatever it may be, and you're the only woman there. I will never know what it's like to be the only black woman there. I imagine that's an additional layer of pressure, quite frankly. But when you're the only woman, you at least I felt like I shouldn't be rocking the boat a lot. If I rock the boat, then I might not get invited back to this one. And so I spent a lot of time listening. That's sort of my style anyway, so that when I speak, hopefully it's a little bit more impactful. I don't have to be the one who speaks the most, but hopefully what I'm saying is important. And so I think that's unfortunate because I don't know that men always feel the same, that same pressure, although they probably should because if someone's not contributing to meetings, they don't usually get invited back or if they're just you know causing issues, they don't get invited back. But that was certainly something I felt earlier in my career. But I, I feel like I've been lucky. I've had good mentors along the way, at least. And I think this is something somebody told me once, and I didn't, under, I didn't understand it until I became a mentor. Your mentors pick you. You don't pick your mentors. And they have to want to be invested in you, and they have to want to go out of their way to help you. And I've been lucky that I've had some really great people that have wanted to do that. And I now intentionally try to do that myself. As women in fields where there are not a lot of women, it's not atypical that we have a lot of male mentors. Those are the people who are kind of running the show. And if you are blessed enough, like it sounds like you have been, like I know I have been, where you find male mentors who decide that, to your point, the mentors pick you, who decide that you're worthy, you're valuable, and they want to invest their knowledge, their skills, their expertise their connections, right, in you, that's a blessing. And it absolutely positions you to help other women, right? Because you've now gained the knowledge that so many women typically don't have. So in speaking about, you know, women helping women, I want to ask you a question that I know is kind of challenging, but I like asking it because I want to get people's perspective on it. And that's DE&I data for almost all industries show that over the last 20 years, as long as DE&I data has been collected, pretty much show that the primary beneficiaries of DE&I programs, initiatives, particularly in the corporate America and the corporate sphere have been Caucasian or white women. They are the people who have had the most increase in representation and are at greater you know, levels of leadership. But you're not seeing that for other women and particularly diverse women, black women, women of color, et cetera, LGBTQ women, et cetera. So I've kind of decided that there should be (laughs) some additional onus or responsibility for white women who are at levels of position and privilege to 
not just invest in whoever they invest in, and particularly other white women, because I know that happens regularly, but also diverse women. And it seems obvious to me that's not happening at the rate it should, or you would also see increases in those women at levels of leadership in across the board in all industries. And that's just not happening. And not only is it not happening, we've seen a regression of women leaving industries, particularly women of color over COVID and since then. So I want to know what are your thoughts around this? Do you feel as a woman in leadership, any particular pressures to make sure that you are inclusive in your opportunities to not just make sure that women you know and may be in your circle are, you know, elevated to higher positions of leadership, but also diverse women who may or may not necessarily be in your circle. You may or may not be able to personally vouch for them, but still seem to have the skills, the qualities, et cetera. What are your thoughts there? That's a lot to unpack. So going back to that table, when you're the only female at that table, part of the pressure I have felt certainly is the pressure of every woman in my organization, whatever one that is I'm working at the time, that I'm representing all of them. And my success or failure, whether I like it or not, or they like it or not, is a reflection on all of us. Um, And I'm sure you have felt that same way at every step of your career. That being said, I feel a great responsibility to mentor women in my company. And when I look at time, time is my enemy a lot of a lot of the time as it is, I'm sure, for you. And when I look at opportunities I'm presented with, I have a couple of filters that I look at them on. And one of them is, is it something that I think is helping mentor women or advancing women or something in which I can maybe speak at something and maybe maybe it will be helpful in some way. And so because those things take a lot of time. I mean, we we met at the Women of Influence Breakfast last fall and I was honored to have been asked to give that keynote by Nate and it was a great honor for me. It took me a ton of time to write that and get that where I was happy with it. And I didn't take it lightly. And so that 10 or 11 minutes was a lot of hours to get it to where it was. And hopefully the couple hundred people that were there took something from it. And so that time would have been well spent. And so I think because there's only so many hours in the day and days in the week, it's important to try to be as focused as you can. You know, my other observation on this is, and this may be generational differences, you know, I craved um, mentorship when I was younger. And I don't know that everybody does, right? And so, um, and especially of younger generations now. And so some of them may think like she has worked way too hard for 30 years and that's not what I want my life to be. And I respect that. And there are some um, younger women in the company that have sort of proactively tried to mentor who really haven't been that receptive to it. And I can't make you want to do that either. And so while that can be frustrating, then you just have to focus your efforts on you know other people. I think so many young people have such potential and I hope to be able to do more of it, but you certainly have to be intentional about it. And I also think my company has some amazing men, you know, of every background. And so how do you sort of feed the the younger generation? I want them to stay in Indianapolis. I want them to invest in our community. I want them to be here a long time. We're as a smaller business, you can hit the ceiling pretty quickly. We don't have 15 right layers, levels, yeah, <laughs> vice presidents of this or directors of that. And so If you are in an area that you really like and then you realize your boss is five years older than you and they love their job and they may not be going anywhere, we're not going to be able to keep you that long. And so how do you 
get them to want to be a part of the company as long as you can with all the different things that we don't make widgets. And that's kind of fun. But it also can be hard. I'll be working tonight. I'll be working tomorrow night. I was working Wednesday late because we have these games and other events. And some people don't want that in their lifestyle. And so, you know, all of that makes it a little bit more complicated. But I think in summary, I feel a ton of pressure about that. And I'm also lucky to have some colleagues who push me on it and make sure that I'm being intentional about it. And I appreciate them. And I think if you've hired really good leaders, they're going to continue to do that. And I have some ones that are not afraid to tell me when they think I'm wrong and not afraid to, to tell me when they think I should be widening my aperture a little bit. And I appreciate that about them. That's the beauty of having a diverse team, right? They can push you on things that are not on your radar, just not any issue. And so I appreciate that. One, When we met, you mentioned when we met at Women of Influence, I was really impressed by your 10 or 11 minutes. So however many hours it took you, thank you for that. One of the things that I recognized about you from that speech was your sense of humor. I thought you had a really, really fun sense of humor, kind of a self-deprecating. You didn't have a problem making fun of yourself and some of the things that you had done along your career and decisions you had made. And I found that very refreshing because certainly um, while Indiana is an excellent state that has great leaders, there is a level by which you hit the serious side and people begin to take themselves, you know, way seriously. So I was impressed by that. And so I want to ask you about authenticity and transparency. Again, I thought your uh, speech at Women of Influence was terribly authentic and transparent. But how necessary do you believe transparency and authenticity are to truly effectuate change in a corporate organization, particularly when you're striving to have more inclusivity, more fairness, more diversity, more belonging, more opportunities? And how have you personally navigated your own authenticity? You've talked about being the only woman in a room, right? In the corporate workplace and in leadership ranks in a way that allows your peers, your colleagues, and your employees to also feel that same freedom and sense of belonging. It's funny because I joke with my friends. I struggle with sort of the authentic self at work piece a little bit, which I think is generational. And I, we sort of joke like my friends will say, you know, they don't want authentic Mel at work because yeah. she's got her hair up in a bun and she's in her sweats and she might not be that nice sometimes. Um, she isn't always trying to be a good leader. But I feel like this generation requires transparency of leadership in a way that when I was in my 20s, I would never have had the guts, frankly, to demand in some cases. And so that can be that can be a little counterintuitive for me. And while I'm not sure many businesses can be 100% transparent about everything, that's just not how the world works. There were certainly times and during COVID in the summer of 2020, in particular, that I was pushed and really in the right way to be transparent about what I was feeling and what we were thinking as an organization. And we didn't have all the answers. I don't think anybody did. And nobody still has all of the answers. But just being able to communicate in real time about the journey that we were on and we were undertaking and and even where we are today with that journey, I think is important. There were definitely times when at a senior level, I'm happy to admit that I was arguing against transparency on some things, not really related to DEI, but other business decisions we were making during COVID. And I was overruled and I was wrong. 
And I learned a lot from that. And so, and I'm glad I was overruled in those cases. And so I think I'm a good communicator. Of course, everybody does. <laughs> I, I try to be pretty transparent with my teams and and I want everyone to be comfortable at work. And then, you know, the Gen X in me is also like, this is work. And so that's I face the same challenges, like how authentic is too authentic, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, we're ultimately they pay me to come here and do something, you know, that's a pretty broad job description, but it doesn't necessarily have to do with some of these other things. But but we all do bring ourselves to the office. And I also recognize that everybody's going through different things at home. And, you know, I've lost my parents and I just bought a house and I moved like that was not a great week for me. I was trying to be have it together, but I'm living out of boxes feeling like I don't know where anything is and it's busy at work. And, you know, and so you've got to give people grace a lot of the time, too. And I think I've become better at that with time. Um, Everybody's not a robot and they're not clocking in and they're perfect all day, every day. And I'm certainly not. And and I also have learned that it's important for me. Maybe this is a little Brene Brown, but it's important for me to let my team know, like, I am a hundred percent an imperfect person. The reason I'm asking you this question is because I've made that mistake before and I'm hoping to avoid you making it. But if you do, or when you do, as we all do, just try not to make it again. And so usually that comes off as humor, but I agree. Like you go to some of these things sometimes and the person speaking, you would think, you know, has never made a mistake their entire life and they've had an Ivy League education and all these other amazing things. And like, how will I ever do that? But that's certainly not the case. And so as I think about when I'm speaking to women, like I got all these gray hairs were earned and I got here. Yeah, I tripped and fell and skinned my knee a lot and um, got up and learned from it and, you know, just keep trying. That's what I think we're all trying to do every day. And there is no perfect leader. There is no perfect manager. I am certainly not that, but I try to be better. And I try to be open for people to give me their input into where they think I could be better. I certainly agree with the gray hairs. Like I tell people all the time, I've earned every one of them. I'm proud of them. Like I, I, I'm good with my gray. Like I'm good. So well beyond your normal day-to-day career obligations that we've talked about in leading the Pacers organization, let's talk about the All-Stars because you are the chair of the 2024 NBA All-Star Committee, which I must assume is a huge deal to have a woman leading that. I mean, we did Allison Melanchthon, and so Indiana has set the stage for women leading huge sports events. But this is another one that's new to Indy, and I've certainly not been here when this has happened previously. So I know this is exciting for the Pacers organization. The city is, like, going crazy. I mean, it's going to be awesome on February 18th or that weekend. So give us some insights and what your team's planning for the the uh, All-Stars this year that the Indianapolis community should be aware of? And how have you all particularly customized the All-Star games with the Indiana Hoosier Hospitality imprint? You gave me a promotion. I'm the president and the chair of the host committee is Rick Fusen. So I don't, I don't want to get fired when I get back to okay, work. Okay, don't, we don't um, want to do but that. But <laughs> he, he actually started with the Pacers in 1984, working on the All-Star game that we hosted in 85. So he sort of got this 40-year span of his career, which is really interesting to hear what this event was. It was nothing like it is today. To what it is today is just such a different thing and in a bunch of different ways. And so how we approach this when we've been on this back in 2017, this has been going on for a while because of COVID, as you know, was that we wanted to be a very 
diverse group of people at every level planning this event and for a few reasons. And our board, which is about 51 people, is the most diverse board I've, I'm on of any of the organizations I'm on. Maybe the Urban League. I'm not on Urban Leagues. Theirs is probably more diverse, but Tony's on our board too. And so from the top of the organization through the host committee, we have 400 members of our host committee. We knew that if we had a as in all things, if we had a diverse group of people planning this at every level, and our employees are very involved as well, and we have a really diverse workforce, that we would have an event that would be something our entire community would be proud of. And so that's how we've looked at it the whole time. And we wanted it to be something that was for the fans. And so we have, you know, downtown is the court and the fans are the all-star kind of theme that's about to roll out. And we wanted to have a great economic impact on the entire community. We wanted to showcase everything that we have going on as a city. We wanted to showcase our franchise. We are one of the best franchises in the league, and the best players in that league are coming to our home to play in these events, and we want to show them how great we are too. And so we're trying to maximize this opportunity every way to Friday, and it's an international audience. A lot of these other events are very U.S.-specific. Yeah. They're, the world doesn't watch March Madness as much as they follow the NBA even though it's the same sport. And so with that in mind, the other thing that our board really pre-COVID before the push was really starting to educate me on, Tanya McKenzie in, in particular, but others, was that this is a different event for the Black community and what it means for the Black community. I'm using some of their words, not mine, is that this is really the Super Bowl for, for that community and it needs to be treated as such and there are some special things that are related to it because of that. And so... We've done quite a bit of outreach, both, and Raphael talked about this because I, I listened to his podcast with you. You know, you can't say that, you know, just like I can't say every white woman feels X thing, the whole black community doesn't feel anything monolithic, monolithically. The whole Hispanic community doesn't. You know, it's sort of generational. And what's been interesting is I think that in the black community, some of the younger people have different expectations than some of the older people who probably were at the 85 All-Star right, Game. Right. And so trying to just make sure that we're understanding what that is, incorporating that into our plans, making sure that everybody feels welcome at this, whether that's being able to have free Indigo to bring you downtown, really dressing up downtown, and we'll be announcing some of those plans in a unique way at a time of the year that you know, it's dark when you get up and it's dark when, you know, when you're going home. And so how can we brighten up downtown and working with the city and the Arts Council and Gang Gang and others on some of those plans and making sure that there are things that if you, you know, can't afford to get into the bigger events, you can still come downtown and be a part of it and feel like you're a part of All Star. So we're working on all of that and those announcements are coming out. But it was really important to us. And in some cities I've been in, I guess, eight All Stars now, gone to see them have literally said, don't come downtown this weekend. Like, it's going to be bad traffic and lots of people. We don't want you downtown. Our message is the opposite. This is for our community, too. We want everyone to come down and get to experience it. And so I hope for those that do love basketball and want to see some of the best basketball in the world and celebrate this game, this weekend is art and fashion and food and culture and music. It's a lot more than basketball. It's, you know, NBA culture is a lot more than just basketball. So I think it's going to be a really special event, and um, we're excited about it. And this isn't something that we're in the rotation to get every four or five years. And so I certainly feel the pressure to maximize this opportunity. Herb really wanted to, and Steve and the Simon family really wanted to host this and do it the right way. And now the building is done and the plaza is done, and we're opening. The new restaurant commission row is opening in a couple of weeks. 
And so I'll be happy to not have one construction barricade <laughs> anywhere near Cambridge Fieldhouse for the first time in three and a half years and just show them what a great place this is. That's so exciting. And I'm so excited for it. And I know, again, the city is just ramping up with excitement about what's getting ready to happen. But you mentioned it, and I want to explore this a bit more. You mentioned that the world, this is really an international event. The world will be watching Indianapolis in a way that it probably has not ever. And so I want to know, you know, what do you believe the world will learn about Indianapolis or Indiana and the Hoosier State through this all star experience that maybe they didn't know. And also, you mentioned the diverse food and art and culture. Give us a couple of examples, if you can, if you're not spilling the beans on anything about how, you know, indie culture, arts, uh, you mentioned gang gangs. How will that be incorporated into the greater all star experience? The all star game and the NBA has become so international. They're playing in Paris next week. And played in Mexico recently, played in India in 2019. It's just the sport is exploding around the world, which right. is really great. Last year, there were 25 players from 17 different countries that played in All-Star Weekend events in the NBA, you know, NBA players. And so I think it's broadcast in over 220 countries around the world, the NBA All-Star game. So I hope that everybody walks away exactly the way they did from the Super Bowl, which is that was the best Super Bowl I've ever been to. And they could never have imagined that without an ocean and a palm tree and a mountain or any of those things that some of these other cities are able to provide. And to this day, I still talk to people. I've also been fortunate enough to work on several Super Bowls after. And when people hear I'm from Indianapolis, they say that was the best Super Bowl I've ever been to. And so I think that we go all in the city and the state and downtown Indy and visit Indy and the sports corp and everybody goes on on these events because we know that we Obviously, you leave an impression on so many people who would otherwise not um, know our city. You had mentioned earlier, you know, being a Pacers fan and the Colts and what we bring. What I often tell people is without some of these key institutions in town, and I think that's the sports teams. I also think it's the symphony and the zoo and the children's museum. Without these things continuing to thrive, we're Omaha or Des Moines or some of these other cities that I'm sure are lovely, but they certainly are not spoken about in the same breath that we are. And when we bid on the All-Star Game back in 2017, there was no doubt in the NBA's mind that we could host this after having done a Super Bowl so successfully. And when we do this successfully, the next big thing that we bid on, there will be no doubt in their mind that we're adding yet another thing that um, makes us successful as a city and a state. So, and that's why I'm lucky enough to have the firepower of so many talented people in town who are all in trying to help us make this successful because we all know what that does for business, for the airport, for, I mean, what Mario is doing at the airport for the All-Star Game is more than any airport that League has ever worked with has done. And they're going to have a basketball court in Civic Plaza. And I mean, it's just, it's amazing what everyone in town is just coming up with these great ideas and and understanding people are going to fly in here for the first time ever. And that is their first impression. And it will also be their last impression. And they know that better than anybody else. So our plans for some time have included activating some parts of downtown that maybe haven't quite bounced back yet from, from COVID. Although every day I feel like more and more people are downtown and more and more businesses are activated. And there's more announcements about restaurants and other things, which is great. Interestingly, when we were hosting the 21 All-Star Game, we did not have an arts and culture committee. 
it was frankly an oversight mistake. Um, when we hosted uh, March Madness in 21, the Arts Council and Gang Gang and others were involved in Swish and all the things that went on during that month of games. As we were kind of reforming our host committee, it was very clear to me that we needed to add that. And we were lucky enough to get Molly and Alan were, wanted to be involved, Julie Goodman and her whole team, Carrie Amstutz at Humanities, are all leading that committee for us. And so we will be activating a couple of spaces downtown that were thriving businesses that are currently not operating. And we'll be announcing soon some of what's going to be in that. But the goal is to showcase a broad section of our community and that some of that will be the arts community. Some of that will be food and beverage. And so we're really excited about what that's going to bring for people who are wandering around. There's a lot of time in between official events or other things for people to explore our city. And then a lot of other league partners are coming in and taking spaces and they're going to do super cool things too. So I think just by walking around downtown, you're going to be exposed to a whole lot of fun stuff. But some of it is what we are showcasing to the world when they're here. It will be Indianapolis on the global stage, and we are super excited and ready for it. So thank you for all that you and your team and your colleagues and the partners and the city is doing to really prepare for this awesome opportunity. So as we wrap up, I want to get a, a view from your vantage point as a diverse executive and again, one of Indiana's largest sports organizations. What do you believe is one of the greatest advances that many Indiana companies have made collectively with around diversity and equity and inclusion in the workplace and in the workforce that is reflected, that is reflected or should be reflected at all level of Hoosier businesses, most of which are still not quite as diverse as we would like them to be. But we've made some great advances. And then additionally, what are two or three tools or tips that you would suggest Indiana corporate leaders who are serious about continuing to make continued changes in their work environment? environments or leadership ranks to make all of those more diverse, more equitable, and more inclusive of all people in Indiana? One of the biggest things is we're talking about it. I mean, five years ago, we weren't writ large across the state, I think, talking about DEI. And now it's, I think, very common conversation in, in business. Um, for us, it's certainly been over the last three and a half, four years, we did a lot of soul searching back in, in 2020 as an organization and, and what we wanted to be and what we stood for. And I think it wasn't that it changed what we were before. It's that we didn't necessarily outwardly speak about it. And as we've grown our programs and we have some, I think, really important priorities and some some great people leading those priorities and we've added some positions there were a lot of silver linings to moving or the all-star game moving that weren't just related to construction. Our team is, we have a better team and at a lot of different areas on the business side, whether that's um, Tracy Ellis Ward, who's our SVP of DEI, or Corey Wilson, who joined us in 2020 as our VP of Community Engagement, um, Danny Lopez, who's our VP of External Relations and Communications, and just a number of people that put us in a better place to also question where we are and where we're going. And I think in order to be successful, you've got to be willing to be honest about where you are. No one's perfect. So there's going to be things that aren't easy. Everybody talks about being uncomfortable, being comfortable, being uncomfortable. I will never be comfortable being uncomfortable. Maybe some people are, but that doesn't mean you can't, you shouldn't be pushing yourself in that direction. I mean, it's always going to be uncomfortable, but you've got to take a good look at it. And then I think to be successful, 
you've got to include your your full workforce. Just having an executive team talking about it and pushing it down won't be successful. And just having people at the mid levels or the lower levels pushing it up isn't going to be successful. I mean, that has to be together. And I think we've done a good job doing that, integrating some committees, for lack of a better term, that are working on real tactical plans that you see in our company that matter, that people are participating in. And if that's not why you come to work, if you come to work to do a good job and go home and do things outside of it, you don't have to participate in these things. So hopefully people feel that way and uh, appreciate our supplier diversity program and um, some of the other things Tracy and her team have done, educational lunch and learns that are have been great. I've gone to and I've learned quite a bit about whether it's indigenous peoples. We just did that recently. It was super interesting. I mean, the state of Indiana has a really rich history in this and we don't talk about it a lot. And so just through some of those things that I think can be simple programmatic things that you can opt into, you can really start to turn the needle on understanding different people's perspectives and then just individual conversations people are having in the company and not being afraid to educate someone if you think they've done something that they maybe shouldn't have done or that you interpreted in a different way than certainly they intended. I tend to lean toward people are trying to do the right thing. They're not trying to do the wrong thing. And so if you interpreted it that way, you know, how can you go back and clarify and explain to them how that made you feel or what that made you think? And hopefully you're creating that environment that people feel comfortable doing it. But always going back to the fact that, the, you know, we're a business and, and this is work and that's my Gen X side too, right? And you have to marry all that together and bake a cake that works for everybody. And, and hopefully we're doing that and we're going to continue improving at that at the Pacers. But I see a lot of other businesses doing that, whether that's what Jimmy's doing out at IMS and IndyCar or the Colts have programs. And, you know, we obviously are a close sports community and we're members of WISE. It's women in sports entertainment and hosting events and trying to help in, in those areas. And so that's, again, what I like about Indy is a rising tide. I think we all get that a rising tide is going to lift all of us together. And so how we can all share best practices, I think, is is great. Thank you so much for coming by the studio, giving us so much to think about and more importantly, so much to look forward to. Again, I've said it repeatedly. The city is looking forward to this. I know you all are. I certainly am. So thank you for um, coming by, giving us uh, some snippets of what is yet to come in the next 30 to 60 days. You said 40 days, right? I think it's 40 yeah, some days. I yeah. know you know it better than I do. <laughs> um, but with that, we're going to end this episode of the Freedom Forum, but thank you so much, Mel, for being our guest on the 30th episode of the Freedom Forum. Thank you so much for having me on. It was a real pleasure. Thank you again to Mel Rains, and thanks to you for joining us on this 30th episode of IBJ's The Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman. Please come back next month for another conversation about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the central Indiana business community. <laughs>